Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. If you're ready to open God's Word, would you say, all right? I'm glad that you are, I am too. If you have God's word today, a copy of the Bible, I wanna ask you if you would to take it and open it with me to Psalm chapter 96. Today we're in the book of Psalms and we're gonna look specifically at Psalm 96 as we study God's word together on this specific theme. Give God the glory. Give God the glory. If you've been here in recent weeks, you know that we have been in a sermon series entitled, Have You Lost It? Have You Lost It? And what we're asking is not, have you lost your mind at any point in your life? Because some of you did that this morning on the way to church, I'm sure. I'm not asking you, have you lost it? Like, have you lost your keys or your cell phone or something? Because I imagine if you've lived as long as I have, that's happened multiple times in your life. When I ask, have you lost it? I am asking you this. Have you lost sight of the glory of God? Have you lost sight of who you were created to worship and to serve? Have you lost sight of why you do what you do. Have you lost sight of the glory of God? So far in our sermon series, we've been in the Old Testament where we've been looking at the illustration of God's dealings with the Israelites, largely in Exodus 32 and Exodus 33. In those passages of scripture, we saw how God revealed his glory in very personal and powerful ways as he met with Moses on the mountain, as he revealed himself by a pillar of cloud and by a pillar of fire, how literally the Israelites would see the thunder and the lightning and they would understand that the presence of God was there. And we've watched and saw how ultimately they kind of lost sight of that and how they got distracted and went their own way. Today, we kind of have a turning point in our sermon series where instead of just looking at the revelation of God's glory, from this point on for the next several weeks, we're going to begin to focus on our response to the glory of God. See, see the reality is God's glory is really hard to, to summarize in our life. To speak of God's glory is to speak of the revelation of all that God is. To speak of God's glory is to say that God is holy, that it's speaking of his perfection, it's speaking of his power, it's speaking of his righteousness, that that he alone is true and has power and all authority over all things. That is a revelation of God's glory. But God's glory is not something to simply be kind of a, a head knowledge, if you will. The reality of God's glory should lead us to a response. The truth of who God is, his power over creation, his working amongst men, it should bring us to a place of response of awe a response of of reverence. It should bring us to a response of worship. And ultimately, as we see in this text, it should bring us to a place of complete and total surrender. Today, as we look at Psalm Psalm 96, I wanna preach on the subject, give God the glory. The truth is today, God is wanting us to see that while he is the God of all glory, in our lives, with the life and breath that he has given us, with the skills and talents and gifts that he has given us, Even though we are imperfect, even though we've fallen short of his glory, because of his grace and mercy through our lives, we can give God glory. And we see how to do that in Psalm 96. If you're able to do so physically, would you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word? We're going to read verses 1 through 10. Listen to what the Bible says. Sing to the Lord a what? A new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. 
tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we praise you for who you are, for what you've done, what you're doing, and what you're going to do. God, I pray that in this time together that you would open our hearts, that you would speak to us directly, and that we would respond with repentance in the way that it's needed. I pray that we would respond today, that we would be in a restored to a right relationship with you, that in everything we would say and do during this time, that you alone would get the glory and praise. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Give God the glory. Last week was the open God's word. I began with a question that we're going to kind of turn around a little bit today. The question I asked you last week was this. If you could ask anything from God, what would you ask for? Maybe you were here last week. You remember that question. If you could ask God for one thing, what would it be? Well, today I want to turn that around a little bit and kind of change our focus. And that is to begin with this question instead. If God were asking one thing from you today, what would God be asking from you? What area of your life today have you yet to fully surrender to him? What area of your life today is God convicting you of? You know it shouldn't be present, and God is calling you today to lay it down and turn from it. What is it that God is asking from you here in this pastor scripture in Psalm 96, we, we come to a pastor scripture that most scholars believe was written by David. And the reason why they believe this psalm was by David most likely is because this psalm is quoted almost verbatim and in its entirety in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. 1 Chronicles chapter 16, David has established a tent. And in this tent, it was to be a resting place, a dwelling place for the Ark of the Covenant. In the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant was largely a symbolic picture of the presence of God with his people. This passage of scripture happens before what we know as the Davidic covenant. This passage of scripture happens before Solomon is anointed as king. This happens before David raises basically all the funds for the building of the tabernacle. It happens before all those things. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16, God convicts David to establish a place for the Ark of the Covenant to exist so that it would be a picture there of God's presence with his people. You can picture the scene in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 as the Ark of the Covenant is brought in and it's laid there in the tent. The Bible tells us immediately when that happened, David burst forth in song. I don't know if you've ever been excited before, but sometimes when you get excited, you cannot help but to burst out in song. Yesterday, my family and I went to a football game at JMU. I'd never been to a JMU football game before. I didn't, frankly, know any of the cheers except for Dukes. You know, that's all I knew. And I didn't know the cheers. I didn't know the band. I didn't know the song. But every time they scored and the band would fire up, you know, like by the end of the song, the end of the, the game, I was learning some of the songs, a lot of tunes. Why? Because there was excitement and it burst forth, so to speak, in song. David burst forth in song, but I'm not focused today on the melody or the beat or anything else. What I want us to focus on is the message. 
Why did David sing to God in this spontaneous moment of worship, and what does it reveal to us today about the glory of God? Three things I want you to see from the text. Number one, I want you to consider the greatness of God. What led David to sing was not the cool beat, the amazing lights, or the good vibes that he felt in that moment. What led David to sing had nothing to do with with some temporary emotion. It had everything to do with the focus on who he was worshiping. He was worshiping the living, the true, almighty God of heaven. And in Psalm 96, he indicates to us there are three primary ways in which we see God's greatness. What are they? Number one, consider God's promise. When you think of the greatness of God, I think we need to begin with understanding the promise of God to all mankind. You might be here today and think, you know what, God's never said anything to me. I've never heard the audible voice of God. But I want you to hear from his word today, loud and clear, his promise to you. What is that promise, verse two? He says in verse two, proclaim good tidings of God's salvation from day to day. The promise of God in this pastor scripture is that God has made a way for you and I, all mankind, to experience a gift and a joy and a peace called salvation. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter three, verse 23, I think it's easy for us to lose sight of the significance of this word, but Romans 3, 23 tells us why this impacts us. It says for all, somebody say all, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means male, woman, uh, 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 boy, girl, every old, young, all of us, it doesn't matter our race, our background, creed, or any, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Not a single one of us here today is perfect. Not a single one of us. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Romans 6, 23, three chapters later, says it this way, for the wages of sin is death. The just consequence, the just cost, so to speak, of my sin and of your sin is death. And speaking of death here, it's referring to a spiritual death. It's referring to the fact that because we are sinners, we've fallen short of God's glory. And as a result, we deserve to spend an eternity separated from God. The wages of sin is death. Without God doing anything, that is our hopeless consequence. That's where we will be, separated from God for all of eternity. But the Bible goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, yes, we have all sinned. Yes, the wages of our sin is death. But God in his grace and mercy has made a way for us to experience eternal and abundant life. God has made a way for us to be rescued from our hopeless, sinful state. Romans chapter 10 even tells us how we can experience that. It says this in Romans chapter 10 verse 9. Loud and clear, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be what? Will be saved. We understand the greatness of God first in his promise that you can be saved. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what's been done to you. You can be rescued from your sin and experience the grace of God and the joy of knowing heaven is your home, eternal life is your gift, and that you have a relationship with the living God of heaven. What an incredible promise. The Bible tells us loud and clear, we can't work to earn this promise. 
We don't get it by our good merits. We don't get it by our good looks. We don't get it by our good efforts. We don't get it by our good upbringing. No, we get it only by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. There's not a single person here today that can't be saved. There's not a single person that you know on your street or your workplace or your family that cannot be saved. All can be saved by God's grace and their simple response of faith. If you wanna see the glory of God, all you have to do is look to Jesus and believe in him. Listen to what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter one about God's glory being revealed fully in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And listen to what Jesus did for us. Listen to what the Bible says. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus has all glory. Listen to this. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Some of you here today might be dealing with private issues and sins that have taken place in your life and you might think, man, God can never forgive me. God can never cleanse me. Maybe you're dealing with such shame from what you've done and the Bible says emphatically through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, he's made purification of sins. All you gotta do is believe in him. Turn to him. And the Bible tells us in that process we will experience the promise of God. Yes, he is great because his promise is that he saves all who come by faith. Secondly, his greatness is revealed in his power. His greatness is revealed in his power. Verses three and four say it this way. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. Verse five, the Lord made the heavens. God's greatness is demonstrated in his power to create, in his power to work in the lives of men. Can you imagine as David makes this statement, tell of his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. Could you imagine if, if David were still living today, if he were still, if he was the one on this platform speaking to you at this moment, he literally, from the time he said that to even today, if he were telling the wonderful deeds of God, he would not even have time to catch his breath because the wonderful deeds of God have been so many. God has demonstrated his power and he's demonstrated his authority. He's demonstrated his wonderful deeds in so many ways. I imagine if David were standing before us today, he could start all the way back in the book of Genesis and he could talk about how God spoke and he created the entire world and brought it into existence. He could speak about how God created man. He could speak about how God caused man to fall asleep and took a rib from his side and there he made woman. He could speak of all those things. David could speak about the wonderful deeds of God that even when Adam and Eve sinned against God, how God in his grace and his mercy intervened and he, he took an animal and through that animal, that spotless lamb, he, he clothed Adam and Eve as a covering for the sins that they had committed. He could speak of all those things. I imagine he could go through the book of Genesis and he could go to Abraham as God in his grace and mercy would look at Abraham and he'd say, Abraham, I've got a better plan for you. I'm gonna make you a father of many nations. I want you to go to a land that I'm gonna show you. He could speak of God's wonderful deeds and out of nothing creating a people for himself. 
I imagine if David were to go all the way then next to the book of Exodus and he could speak about how God spoke through a burning bush to call Moses to himself, how God sent plagues against the Egyptians to deliver his people from slavery. I imagine that David could continue on about how God spared them, how he parted the Red Sea, how he provided food for them in the wilderness. And all throughout the Old Testament, you see God working and doing wonderful, impossible, incredible deeds that were only possible with him. Truth be told, today we can continue on to the New Testament. And we can study the life of Jesus, how the fullness of glory dwelt in Jesus. And what do we find? We find that he would look at the lame and he would say, rise, take up your bed and walk. And instantly the man who's lame is able to walk. He he could touch the the eyes of the man that was blind. and, And the Bible would tell us he suddenly could see. He could speak and the deaf could hear. He could call them by name and the body that was dead would be raised to life. Why? Because of his greatness and power. In fact, in John chapter five, there are people who are coming against Jesus and they're criticizing him and they're dismissing and denying the works that he's performing. And Jesus literally says in John chapter five that these things are inexplainable. They are nothing but by the power of God. My works reveal who I really am is what Jesus is saying. David says it this way in Psalm 96. And by the way, the Lord made the heavens. Want an evidence for the greatness of the power of God? You're not here by accident. This didn't come into being by mistake. God created it. Psalm 97 verse six says it this way. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the peoples have seen his glory. Romans chapter one verses 18 through 20 tells us this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Listen to this statement. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. You know what the Bible's telling us? That all creation is declaring the glory of God. When you seriously take a close look at creation, even the intricacies of the human body, the majestic uh, aspects, if you will, of the Grand Canyon and of the oceans and of the stars, when you really examine creation, it is clear and obvious there is an intelligent designer, a creator, who brought it into existence. It's amazing to me how we, in our culture today, will question that. And we'll try to dismiss that, but, but think of it for just, just, just for a moment. Let's suppose I were to take a canvas and I were to bring it before you today and it was clear that there was a beautiful picture on this canvas. When you looked at that canvas, you would look with the immediate assumption that an artist had painted it. So somebody didn't just take a whole bunch of paint and gob it all together in a Ziploc bag and pour it out and hope for the best, right? And as you studied it, you'd be like, well, well, what was the artist trying to convey and why this color and, and why this brush and what was the mood and what was the purpose of this? You would understand that. When you walked into this building today, many times we take for granted, we're not even thinking about it, but, but you didn't come in here thinking this just happened to be. I, I mean, nobody took concrete and wood and sheetrock and screws and, and, and carpet and literally just kind of shook it up in a big concrete mixer and threw it out and here all of a sudden you have a worship center, Right? You understand that there was a design, there was an architect, there was an engineer, there was a builder, there was a purpose that came together. And so you might look and you might wonder, well, why did they go with this color? And why is this here? And why are there beams on the stage? I still don't know either, okay? And so you might ask all those kinds of questions. 
Because you understand there was a design and there was a purpose along the way given at that moment. When you look at creation, when you look at the heavens, when you look at the earth, when you look at what man will still call of the Grand Canyon, the deep hidden secrets that we still have yet to discover, it boils down to the reminder that there is a great creator who made us. Brings us to the question, so why are we here? What is our purpose in his story? What is his plan for these things? It is a reminder of the power of God. Through the view of the created universe, the unsaved man recognized, though sadly, in this moment, they have a choice, but sadly in their history, they didn't always choose the right thing. Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah chapter six, for example, the Bible says that God says specifically, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But listen to what the people chose. And they said, we will not walk in it. By the time you get to the end of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 42, God's people go to Jeremiah, the prophet, and they say, hey, Jeremiah, would you seek God for us? We want to know God's direction. We want to know God's will. And it sounds like they're ready to make the right choice. Whatever God tells you to do, we're going to do it, Jeremiah. Jeremiah seeks God. He gets direction. He goes to the people and he says, here's the word of God. This is what God says. And because they were already bent on going their own direction, you know what they did? No, God didn't say that. You're just lying, Jeremiah. Your, your servant Baruch puts you up to this. The fact is, is that they were already headstrong and bent on going their own direction. Today, God is calling us where there is sin in our life, where there are things that are contradictory to his will and to his word. He's calling us to a place of confronting them and making the choice of humbling ourselves and repenting of these in our lives. There is no way that you can be right with God and have a renewed vision of his glory without a brokenness over your sin and a turning from it. Author Erwin Lutzer says it this way, the glory is restored by biblically taking care of sin because sin always causes the withdrawal of the glory of God among his people. Third thing, if God's glory is to be restored, I want you to see the change that should be evident. The change that should be evident. There are many people, no doubt, many people amongst the Israelites in that moment, many people in the church even today who would say, hey, hey, I, I'm in a right relationship with God. Like, I'm on the right path. I'm going the right direction. Like, God and I, we are like this. But I'm reminded this morning that the greatest evidence of our true relationship with God is not in our claims, but in our conduct. It's not in what we have professed. It is in what we're practicing in our life. If we truly have been changed by repentance of sin and accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior, then the greatest evidence of that will be seen in a heart and a life that has been changed. I'm reminded of that. Let me give a brief illustration for just a moment. Let's say this afternoon, you were to go home, families, you and if you, if you have children, for example, and let's just say you were to have your, your meal and after that you were to make a delicious dessert called chocolate chip cookies, hallelujah, one of God's gifts to man, Okay. And let's say you were to look at all the kids, I see you like them too, and you were to say, hey kids, you know what? After lunch, you can have one chocolate chip cookie. It's your only cookie for the day. And they were to eat that one cookie and they were to enjoy it, I mean, probably in one big bite, right? And you were to say to them afterwards, all right, no more cookies today, but we can get more cookies you know, later tomorrow or something. And after that, you were to take all the extra cookies and you were to put them in the cookie jar and leave them in the cookie jar. 
Well, they heard the rule. They heard the instruction. Let's just say, though, 30 minutes later, you heard some movement in the kitchen and you were curious. You came back to find that, that little Johnny or, or little Jane, they had already gotten back in the cookie and they were already in the process of eating a second. And let's say you corrected them. No, 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 no. I told you only one and, and you shouldn't have done that. And they were to say, I'm sorry, mommy. I'm sorry, daddy. And you said, that's okay. I'm told you not to do that. Okay, I won't do that again. And let's just say you put them down for a nap and you went to the back room for just a moment and just five minutes later, you hear those pitter-patter feet and before you even get into the kitchen, you see they've already eaten another. And let's say this pattern begins. I don't know if that's just my house or not, but anybody ever been there before? You see, that, that child can say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And they can even say, I'm not gonna do that again because the reality is in that moment, there's remorse. But the evidence of repentance does not mean that you're perfect but it means a change. You don't keep going to the same path. You don't keep going to the same pattern. And the Bible says in this moment, a change took place. In fact, the Bible tells us loud and clear in Exodus chapter 33, that in this moment, that the people of God, they went into mourning. None of them put on their ornaments, their jewelry, if you will. And those who did, they, they, they'd already had it on. They immediately took it off. And the Bible says this little word in verse six, they did this from Mount Horeb onward. A change of humility and of brokenness over what they had done. This word they had heard, it grieved them. Not only that, verses 7 through 11 tells us something interesting. It tells us that even in the midst of the, the broken fellowship, the distance that God had experienced as the tent would be taken now outside of the camp, Moses would go there to pray and to talk with God. Even in the midst of that distant fellowship, God was still looking at the people in verse 7. He said, listen, so those who want to seek me, you can still seek me. Those who want to know me, you can come out to this place and you can talk to me and you can pray to me and you can seek me with your life. Verses 7 through 11, when Moses would go out to the tent, the cloud would descend and the people knew that God was meeting there with Moses. And so the people would come outside of their own tents and they would stand, the Bible says. The idea is they're standing out of respect. And when they saw that cloud descend, there they would worship. These are the same people, the chapter prior, that were bowing to singing songs to and celebrating feasts for a dead, false, man-made idol. Here they are in Exodus chapter 33, and a major change is taking place. Why? Because they come before God with a brokenness and with a repentance over their sin. Can I remind us this morning, if we're going to have a restored view of the glory of God, we cannot condone our sin. We cannot justify it or excuse it. We can't spend our time pointing at other people We've got to look in our own hearts and lives. And where there is sin, 1 John 1, 9, we must confess our sins, forsake those sins. And if we confess and forsake those sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The restoration of God's glory. But the restoration of God's glory leads us to a second point in this passage of scripture, and that is this. I want you to see the request for God's glory. If we're going to have a renewed focus on God's glory, we must begin with confronting the sin in our own lives, repenting of it, and living out this commitment through a life that's been changed. And one of the ways we do that is by the way we relate to God, specifically in prayer. For those of you today who have been watching us by means of the broadcast, I want you to know you can hear the rest of this message on our website because there's much more that God wants to say about a relationship with him. For all of us here in the building, I want you to consider for just a moment the request that God shows us in this illustration of this man by the name of Moses. If you could ask God for anything, what would you ask for? That's why we began this message. 
I can think of a lot of things that Moses could have asked for in this moment, but there's none greater than the request that we're gonna find by the time we get to the end of this chapter. And my hope and prayer is that God would allow this to be loud and clear in our lives in a powerful way today. Listen to what God says in this request for God's glory. Now, I have to confess that if I were in Moses' shoes, there's a lot of things I could think to ask God for. Like if I were in Moses' shoes right now and I've been leading this, this people that have been rebellious going their own direction, in this moment, I have to confess, I might be asking like, God, can you, can you give me a new people to lead? That'd be great, God. I might be asking me, God, God, could you give me a day of peace and quiet without any other complaints? That would be really nice, right? I mean, can you give me a day where the kids aren't constantly going to the cookie jar? That would be amazing, God, right? I mean, if I'm Moses in this moment, I'm probably thinking practically like, God, I could, I could really use some sandals, a steak. I mean, something really good would be awesome right now. But Moses was far more mature for that he was far more focused than that to ask for something so temporary and so limited in the grand scheme of eternity. Moses begins a series of requests. I'm gonna list them as three things that I think shows us his heart. And my hope is that it becomes our heart in each of our lives today. First thing I want you to see is this. His request showed devotion to God. Notice what he says in verse 13. Therefore, I pray you, God, if I find favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you. Let me know your ways that I may know you. Now, notice this request is not merely for his benefit as if he's just looking for another blessing from God. God, let me know your ways so that I can be blessed in this life. God, let me know your way so that I can get some grand position in life. God, let me know your way so that I can be wealthy and wise. God, let me know your way so that I can be popular and have a following and have lots of followers on social media. God, let me know your way so that everything I say, you know, is like directly from you. God, let me know your ways for some benefit for me. No, that's not what he says. God, let me know your ways. Here's the only reason. Here's the focus. So that I may know you. Now pause for a moment. Moses already knew many of the ways of God. He had been meeting with God on the mountain. And yet in this moment, what he's saying is this. God, I wanna know you more. I know I've been spending time with you. I know you've been talking to me. I know we've been in relationship, in relationship like a friend to a friend, but God, it's not enough. I wanna know you more. I want to hear you more. I wanna understand you more. God, I want to know you. In other words... Moses understood the greatest blessing and the prize is not in what he could receive, but in who he was growing to know. Please understand, this is the same type of concept that Paul explained in Philippians chapter three when he says this in verse eight and 10. He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I suffer the loss of all things. And I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, listen, I've experienced all these things from wealth and success and popularity and prestige of religious leadership, all these different things. But I'm telling you, it is nothing. It is like garbage. It is like rubbish compared to knowing Jesus Christ personally and knowing him more and more. Here's my question. 
Do you know Jesus Christ personally as your Lord and Savior? You know what one of the greatest evidences of a, know, a knowing relationship with Jesus, you know what one of the greatest evidences is? It's a hunger and a drive and a pursuit to know him more. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We see that illustrated every time there's a dating relationship that begins that leads to marriage. You see a couple going on a date and they begin to talk and they begin to spend time together and they're learning each other's ways and their personality, their likes and dislikes and their different ways of life and how they do things. And, and there's a date and there's a date and it just keeps growing and to find that there's an engagement and then there's a marriage. And then once they say, I do, it shouldn't end there. They continue to date. They continue to spend time. They continue to laugh. Why? Because there's a desire and a hunger to know each other more. And frankly, those relationships that grow cold, somewhere along the way, they stopped with that desire. When you and I know Jesus, there's a constant drive within our soul to know him more. Moses' request shows an incredible devotion to the Lord. But secondly, can I just see this? Say, say this, his request showed complete dependence upon God. I love this statement, please don't miss this. Here in this moment, Moses makes a statement in verse 12 that I think, frankly, is a powerful statement of faith, but it's also an implied request. Here's what he says. Moses said to the Lord, see you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Verse 14, God answers this statement and says this, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses says in verse 15, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. His request showed a great dependence upon God. When Moses said, Lord, you would not let me know yet who's gonna go with me. Please understand, Moses had tons of people around him. The Israelites were a large group of people and he had, he had servants and leaders around him. He had Joshua, the son of Nun. He had Aaron, the priest that he had just had to rebuke in the chapter prior, but he had people, he had plenty of people to go with him. When Moses says, Lord, you yourself have not let me know what he's in essence saying is this, Lord, who possibly better than you could go with us? Lord, there is nobody like you. Only you have all power and only you have all authority. Only you are the living God of heaven. You're not like all the dead, lifeless gods of Egypt. You're not like all the golden calves of the world. You're not like all the pleasures that the world promises. You're not like all these things that we're hearing about in the culture, God. You are the only true living. Who is there possibly like you? His statement is a statement of faith in God, but also a statement of saying, God, there is no one else. God, you're promising us this land and you told us that this, your angel will go with us, but God, well, we don't want merely an angel. We want you. We need you. Think of that. God was saying to him, Moses, I'm going to give you the land. Y'all can go on into the land and you can have a, a pretty good future and you know, y'all can keep praying the way y'all been praying and you can keep having feasts and sacrifices the way you've been doing. You can keep singing and you can go through all the different motions. You can keep doing what you've been doing. But Moses knew that what they'd been doing wasn't enough because it was dead, lifeless, pointless, and worthless if God wasn't in it. Could it be that one of the reasons the church, the big C church in America, 
has lost its voice, its influence, and its light for the gospel of Jesus Christ is because we have settled for cheap substitutes. We are going through the vain, worthless, pointless motions of traditions, symbols, rituals, and religion, and God is not really in it. See, in this moment, like Moses is so desperate and so dependent upon the presence of God, he literally comes to God, he's like, God, if, 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 you're, not in, if you're not leading us forward, I don't want to go. God, I would have rather sit here in this wilderness, completely unaware I'm going, completely unaware of what the enemy's going to do, but I would rather be here content with you in the desert with nothing, nothing else than to go forward to the promised land without you. I'd rather be in a place that the world says is suffering and know that I'm... His request shows his absolute dependence on God. God, I don't need anything else. I need you. And finally, his request shows his deep, deep desire for God. Exodus chapter 33, verse 17. God speaks and he says, Moses, you have found favor in my sight. I have known you by name. Moses hearing that incredible word of assurance, I know you by name. Moses, you're my child. I, I, I'm granting my favor to you. Moses hearing that word takes one step further. To be honest with you, I almost look at it from man's perspective and I'm like, hey man, slow down. You might get a little demanding here. I don't, I don't know. You know, like you've asked a lot of God already. But God in his goodness and grace delights in those who seeks him above all. Moses comes in his final request and I think ultimately states the desire and summary of his heart. And here's what he says. I pray you, God, show me your glory. I pray you, show me your glory. Now, pause for just a moment. God has already revealed his glory in Moses' life. I don't know if you remember this or not, but when God called Moses, he did so when he was on the backside taking care of sheep, backside of a hill taking care of sheep, and he called him from a burning bush. Remember that story? God spoke from the burning bush, but the bush wasn't consumed. God was revealing his presence and his power even in that moment, and Moses saw it with his own eyes, and it was a seeing it that called his attention. Throughout this passage of scripture, we've seen over and over again that God would speak there at the mountain and he would call Moses up and there a cloud would descend upon that mountain and there was thunder and lightning so much so that the Israelites would be terrified. But God knew that, that Moses knew that God was meeting there and so there was a revelation. He saw in, in aspect the glory of God. When God was leading the Israelites through the wilderness, there was a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Why? Because it was a revelation of the glory of God. What is Moses asking for here? Much like his request Show me your ways that I may know you. Here's basically what he's saying. God, I want to see you face to face. I want to know you in the fullness of who you are. I want to know you so personally and so intimately. God, I know that I'm in relationship with you, but it's not, a, I want to keep growing. I want to keep knowing. I want to experience you in a way that I've never experienced you before. What we see here is a man who's not complacent, not content to settle for substitutes. Not content to settle on some past experience. 
Oh, you know, 20 years ago, this happened in my life. That's awesome. Please remember those past things were, were to prepare you for what God wants to do today. This is a man who is hungering, thirsting, and longing for God's presence to be revealed in his life. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you longed and desired and craved God's presence to be revealed in your life? He says, Lord, show me your glory. Warren Wiersbe says it this way, the true servant of God is concerned more about the glory of God than anything else. The Bible tells us, and you'll have to read the rest of the pastor scripture in your own time this week, that God looked at Moses and he said, Moses, well, you, you can't see my face and live. Your, your mortal body cannot see me and literally survive it. But here's what I'm gonna do, Moses. I'm gonna hide you in the cleft of the rock. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna let all my goodness, I'm gonna let my glory pass by you. And when I pass by, you're gonna look. And after I have passed, you're gonna see my glory. Just a glimpse, just a glimpse. And that's exactly what God did. The Bible tells us in the following chapters that when Moses came down off of this meeting with God, his face, his countenance shone so bright that at first it scared the Israelites. He could not hide the fact that he had seen the glory of God. It literally left an evidence in his life. I wonder today, could it be that the reason that the world doesn't see the light so often in and through us is because we've lost sight of the glory of God. And could it be the reason why we lost sight is because God and his glory has not been our primary pursuit and focus. So let me ask you. The Bible says in the book of Acts that the living God of heaven is the God of glory. In Exodus chapter 33, we see this incredible request. God Show me your glory. I'm convinced that the God of glory hasn't changed. He's still the same yesterday, today, and forever. He still delights in revealing himself in our lives. But the question is this for each of us. Do we desire his glory above any and everything else? My hope and prayer is that for each of us in our lives today, that we can get to a place where we would be praying personally in our own hearts, God, would you show me your glory? That in our homes, in our marriages, that we won't be about our, our agenda, our desires, even our goals for that matter, but instead as husbands and wives and as children perhaps gathered together, that we'd be seeing the other, God, would you show us your glory? Show us who you are. Show us what you'd have us to do. My prayer for us as a church that we would not be about the name of Crosslink or anything else but the name of Jesus, his glory, his will, his praise. Many of us want revival in our lives, our homes, our church, our nation, but I'm telling you, I don't believe it will happen until we come to a place of repentance over sin, humbly requesting above any and everything else God, would you show us your glory? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time together and for the ways that you speak to our heart and life. I pray, God, 
where there are idols in our life, that we would remove them. I pray, God, where there is sin in our life, that we would repent of sin and turn from it and turn to you. And God, I pray today, if there's anyone who's just on the wrong path, they have never accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be this day of salvation for them, where they would experience the joy of knowing their sins are forgiven, the peace of knowing that they've received the gift of eternal life, the hope of knowing that one day they'll be in heaven. God, I pray that today would be their day of salvation. I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.